Chapter Fifteen of Visions and Revisions by John Cooper Powis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Dostoevsky. The first discovery of Dostoevsky is for a spiritual adventurer such a shock as is not likely to occur again. One is staggered, bewildered, insulted. It is like a hit in the face at the end of a dark passage. A hit in the face followed by the fumbling of strange hands at one's throat. Everything that has been forbidden by discretion, by caution, by self-respect, by atavistic inhibition, seems suddenly to leap up out of the darkness and seize upon one with fierce, indescribable caresses. All that one has felt, but is not dared to think, all that one has thought, but is not dared to say, all the terrible whispers from the unspeakable margins, all the horrible wreckage and silt from the unsounded depths float in upon us and overpower us. There is so much that the other writers, even the realists among them, cannot, will not say. There is so much that the normal self-preservative instincts in ourselves do not want said. But this Russian has no mercy. Such exposures humiliate and disgrace. What matter? It is well that we should be so laid bare. Such revelations provoke and embarrass. What matter? We require embarrassment. The quicksilver of human consciousness must have no closed chinks, no blind alleys. It must be compelled to reform its microcosmic reflections, even down there where it has to be driven by force. It is extraordinary how superficial even the great writers are, how lacking in the mole's claws and the woodpecker's beak. They seem labouring beneath some pathetic vow, exacted by the demons of our fate, under terrible threats, only to reveal what will serve their purpose. This applies as much to the realists with their traditional animal chemistry as to the idealists with their traditional ethical dynamics. It applies above all to the interpreters of sex, who in their conventional grossness, as well as in their conventional discretion, bury such ostrich heads in sand. The lucky, unlucky individual whose path this formidable writer crosses quickly begins, as he reads page by page, to cry out in startled wonder and terrified protest. This rending nighthawk reveals just what one hugged most closely of all, just what one did not confess. Such a person reading this desperate clairvoyant finds himself laughing and chuckling under his breath and against his will over the little things there betrayed. It is not any more a case of enjoying with distant aesthetic amusement the general human spectacle. He himself is the one scratched and pricked. He himself is the one so abominably tickled. That is why women, who have so mad a craving for the personal and everything, are especially caught by Dostoevsky. He knows them so fatally well. Those startling contradictory feelings that make their capricious bosoms rise and fall those feelings that they find so difficult themselves to understand, he drags them all into the light. The kind of delicate cruelty that in others becomes something worse, refines itself in his magnetic genius into a cruelty of insight, 
that knows no scruple. Nor is the reluctance of these gentle beings so thrillingly betrayed to yield their passionate secrets unaccompanied by pleasure. They suffer to feel themselves so exposed, but it is an exquisite suffering. It may indeed be said that the strange throb of satisfaction with which we human beings feel ourselves at the bottom where we cannot fall lower to be further unmasked is never more frequent than when we read dostoevsky and that is largely because he alone understands the depravity of the spirit as well as of the flesh and the amazing wantonness whereby the human will does not always seek its own realization and well-being but quite as often its own laceration and destruction Dostoevsky has indeed a demonic power of revelation in regards to that twilight of the human brain where lurk the phantoms of unsatisfied desire and where unspoken lusts stretch forth pitiable hands there are certain human experiences which the conventional machinery of ordinary novel writing lacks all language to express he expresses these not in tedious analysis but in the living cries and gasps and gestures and fumblings and silences of his characters themselves who like dostoevsky has shown the tragic association of passionate love with passionate hate which is so frequent a human experience this monstrous hate love caressing the bruises itself has made and shooting forth the forked viper tongue of cruelty from between the lips that kiss has anything but he held it fast through all its protean changes i suppose when one really thinks of it at the bottom of every one of us lurk two primary emotions vanity and fear it is in the knowledge of the aberrations of these of the mad contortions that these lead to that the other writers seem so especially simple-minded over and over again in reading dostoevsky one is positively seized by the throat with astonishment at man's insight into the labyrinthine retreats of our secret pride and of our secret fear his characters at certain moments seem actually to spit gall and wormwood as they tug at the quivering roots of one another's self-esteem but this fermenting venom this seething scum is only the expression of what goes on below the surface every day in every country dostoevsky's russians are cruelly voluble but their volubility taps the evil humour of the universal human disease their thoughts are our thoughts their obsessions our obsessions let no one think in his vain security that he has a right to say i have no part in this morbidity i am different from these poor madmen the curious nervous relief we experience as we read these books is alone a sufficient vindication they relieve us as well as trouble us because in these pages we all confess what we have never confessed to anyone our self-love is outraged but outraged with that strange accompaniment of thrilling pleasure that means an expiation paid a burden lightened use the word degenerate if you will but in this sense we are all degenerate for thus and not otherwise is woven the stuff whereof men are made certainly the russian soul has its peculiarities and these peculiarities we feel in dostoevsky as nowhere else 
he not tolstoy or turgenev is the typical slav writer but the chief peculiarity of the russian soul is that it is not ashamed to express what all men feel and this is why dostoevsky is not only a russian writer but a universal writer from the french point of view he may seem wanting in lucidity and irony from the english point of view he may seem antinomian and non-moral but he has one advantage over both he approaches the ultimate mystery as no western writer except perhaps shakespeare and goethe have ever approached it he writes with human nerves upon parchment made of human tissue and abysm evocate abysm from the darkness wherein he moves among other things dostoevsky's insight is proved by the profound separation he indicates between morality and religion to many of us it comes with something of a shock to find harlots and murderers and robbers and drunkards and seducers and idiots expressing genuine and passionate religious faith and discussing with desperate interest religious questions but it is our psychology that is shallow and inhuman not his and the presence of real religious feeling in a nature obsessed with the maddest lusts is a phenomena of universal experience it may indeed be said that what is most characteristically russian in his point of view he has told us so himself is the substitution of what might be called sanctity for what is usually termed morality as an ideal of life the christianity of which dostoevsky has the key is nothing if not an ecstatic invasion of regions where ordinary moral laws based upon prudence and self-preservation disappear and give place to something else the secret of it beyond repentance and remorse lies in the transforming power of love lies in fact in vision purged by pity and terror but its precise nature is rather to be felt than described it is in connection with this christianity of his a christianity completely different from what we are accustomed to that we find the explanation of his extraordinary interest in the weak as opposed to the strong the association between christianity and a certain masterful moral self-assertive energy such as we feel the presence of in england and america might well tend to make it difficult for us to understand his meaning it is precisely this sort of thing that makes it difficult for us to understand russia and the russian religion but as one reads dostoevsky it is impossible to escape a suspicion that we western nations have as yet only touched the fringe of what the christian faith is capable of whether considered as a cosmic secret or as an nepenthe for human suffering he saw with clairvoyant distinctness how large a part of the impetus of life's movement proceeds from the mad struggle always going on between the strong and the weak it was his emphasis upon this struggle that helped nietzsche to those withering exposures of the tyranny of the weak which cleared the path for his terrible transvaluations it was dostoevsky's demonic insight into the pathological subsoil of the religion of pity which helped nietzsche to forge his flashing counterblasts but though their vision of the general situation thus coincided their conclusions were diametrically different 
for nietzsche the hope of humanity is found in the strong for dostoevsky it is found in the weak their only ground of agreement is that they both refute the insolent claims of mediocrity and normality one of the most arresting truths that emerge like silvery fish at the end of the line of this fissure in the abysses is the truth that any kind of departure from the normal may become a means of mystic illumination the same perversion or contortion of mind which may in one direction lead to crime may in another direction lead to extraordinary spiritual clairvoyance and this applies to all deviations from the normal type and to all moods and inclinations in normal persons under unusual excitement or strain the theory is as a matter of fact as old as the oldest races in egypt and india as well as rome and athens the gods were always regarded as in some special way manifesting their will and revealing their secrets to those thus stricken the view that wisdom is attained along the path of normal health and rational sanity has always been a philosophical and never a religious view dostoevsky's dominant idea has indeed many affinities with the pauline one and is certainly quite a justifiable derivation from the evangelical doctrine it is however none the less startling to our western mind in dostoevsky's books madmen idiots drunkards consumptives degenerates visionaries reactionaries anarchists nymphalettes criminals and saints jostle one another in a sort of dance macabre but not one of them but has his moment of ecstasy the very worst of them that little band of fanatic supermen of lust whose extravagant manias and excesses of remorse suggest attitudes and gestures that would need an aubrey beardsley for illustration have at moments moods of divine sublimity nikolai vasevoldovich stavrogin in the possessed sevredigaliev duaneus would-be seducer in crime and punishment and ivan in the brothers karamazov though all inspired by ten thousand demons cannot be called devoid of a certain mysterious spiritual greatness perhaps the interesting thing about them is that their elaborate wickedness is itself a spiritualized rather than a sensual quality or to put it in another way there are abysmal depths of spiritual subtlety in their most sensual obsession the only entirely base criminal i can recall in dostoevsky is stravrogin's admirer peter stepanovich and he is transformed and transfigured at times by the sheer intensity of his worship for his friend it would be overpowering the reader with names themselves like ritualized incantations to enumerate all the perverts and abnormalists whose various lapses and diseases become in these books mediums of spiritual insight though dealing continually with every form of tragedy and misery dostoevsky cannot be called a pessimist he is so profoundly affected by the spirit of the evangelical beatitudes that for him poverty and meekness and hungering and thirsting and weeping and mourning are always in the true sense blessed that is to say they are the path of initiation the sorrowful gates to the unspeakable joy 
The most beautiful characters he has drawn are perhaps Alyosha Karamazov and Prince Mishkin, both of these being young men, and both of them so Christ-like that in reading about them one is compelled to acknowledge that something in the temper of that figure, hitherto concealed from his followers, has been communicated to this Russian. The naive and yet ironical artlessness of their retorts to the aggressive Philistines who surround them remind one over and over again of those divine bon mots with which, to use Oscar Wilde's allusion, the Redeemer bewildered his assailants. Stefan Trofinovich, reading the miracle of the swine, with his female colporteur, Roskolnikov, reading the miracle of the raising of Lazarus, with his prostitute Sonia, are scenes that might strike an English mind as mere melodramatic sentiment. But those who have entered into the Dostoevsky secret know how much more than that there is in them, and how deep into the mystery of things and the irony of things they go. One is continually coming upon passages in Dostoevsky, the strange and ambiguous nature of which leads one's thought, far enough from the evangelical simplicities, passages that are, indeed, at once so beautiful and so sinister, that they make one think of certain demonic sayings of Goethe or Spinoza. And yet even these passages do no more than throw new and formidable light upon the old situations, the old crossroads. Dostoevsky is not content with indicating how weakness and disease and suffering can become organs of vision. He goes very far, further than anyone, in his recognition of the secret and perverted cruelty that drives certain persons on to lacerate themselves with all manner of spiritual flagellation. He understands better than anyone else how absurd the philosophical utilitarians are with their axiom that everyone pursues his own happiness. He exposes over and over again with nerve-rending subtlety how intoxicating to the human spirit is the mad lust of self-immolation, of self-destruction. It is really from him that Nietzsche learnt that wanton Dionysic talisman which opens the door to such singular spiritual orgies. Nothing is more characteristic of Dostoevsky's method than his perpetual insistence upon the mania which certain curious human types display for making fools of themselves. The more sacred aspect of this deliberate self-humiliation require no comment. It is obviously good for our spirit's salvation to be made fools in Christ. What one has to observe further, under his guidance, is the strange passion that certain derelicts in the human vortex have for being trampled upon and flouted. These queer people, but there are more of them than one would suppose, derive an almost sensual pleasure from being abominably treated. They positively lick the dust before their persecutors. They run to kiss the rod. It is this type of person who, like the hero in the story, in L'Esprit Souterrain, deliberately rushes into embarrassing situations, into situations and among people where he will look a fool in order to avenge himself upon the spectators of his folly by going deeper and deeper into it. If Dostoevsky astounds us by his insight into the abnormalities of normal men, 
he is still more startling when he deals with women. There are certain scenes, the scene between Aglaia and Nastasia in The Idiot, the scene between Sonia and her mother and sister of Roskolnikov in Crime and Punishment, the scene in The Possessed, where Lisa leaves Stavrogin in the morning after the fire, and the scene where the woman, loved by the mad Karamazov brothers, tears her nerves and theirs to pieces in outrageous obliquity, which brand themselves upon the mind as reaching the uttermost limit of devastating vision. In reviewing the final impression left upon one by the reading of Dostoevsky, one must confess to many curious reactions. He certainly has the power of making all other novelists seem dull in comparison, dull or artistic and rhetorical. Perhaps the most marked effect he has is to leave one with the feeling of a universe with many doors, with many doors and not a few terrifyingly dark passages, but a universe the opposite of closed or explained. Though not a single one of his books ends happily, the final impression is the reverse of hopeless. His very mania for tragedy, his Dionysic embracing of it, precludes any premature despair. Perhaps a profound deepening of one's senses of the mysterious perversity of all human fate is the thing that lingers, a perversity which is itself a kind of redemption, for it implies arbitrariness and waywardness, and these things mean power and pleasure, even in the midst of suffering. He is the best possible antidote for the peculiar and paralyzing fatalism of our time, a fatalism which makes so much of environment and so little of character, and which tends to endow more worldly and material success with a sort of divine prerogative, a generation that allows itself to be even interested in such types as the strong, efficient craftsmen of modern industry and finance, is a generation that can well afford a few moral shocks at the hands of Dostoevsky's degenerates. The world he reveals is, after all, in spite of the Russian names, the world of ordinary human obliquity. The thing for which we have to thank him is that it is made so rich and deep, so full of fathomless pits and unending vistas. Every great writer brings his own gift, and if others satisfy our craving for destruction and beauty, and yet others our longing for simplification and rational form, the suggestions he brings of mystery and passion, of secret despairs and occult ecstasies, of strange renunciations and stranger triumphs, are such as must quicken our sense of the whole weird game. Looking back over these astonishing books, it is curious to note the impression left of Dostoevsky's feeling for nature. No writer one has met with has less of that tendency to describe scenery, which is so tedious an aspect of most modern work. And yet Russian scenery and Russian weather, too, seem somehow, without our being aware of it, to have got installed in our brains. Dostoevsky does it incidentally by innumerable little side-touches and passing allusions, but the general effect remains in one's mind with extraordinary intimacy. 
the great russian cities in summer and winter their bridges rivers squares and crowded tenements the quaint provincial towns and wayside villages the desolate outskirts of half-deserted suburbs and beyond them all the feeling of the vast melancholy plains crossed by lonely roads such things associated in detail after detail with the passions or sorrows of the persons involved recur as inveterately to the memory as the scenes and weather of our personal adventures it is not the self-conscious art of a lotti or a denunzio it is that much more penetrating and imaginative suggestiveness which arrests us by its vague beauty in terror and leer or macbeth this subtle interpenetration between humanity and the familiar stage of its exits and entrances is only one portion of the weight of cosmic destiny one can use no other word which bears so heavily upon us as we read these books in other writers one feels that when one has gone full circle with the principal characters and has noted the descriptive setting all has been done here as in Aeschylus or Euripides as in Shakespeare and Goethe one is left with an intimation of the clash of forces beyond and below humanity beyond and below nature one stands at the brink of things unspoken and unspeakable one sees the children sport upon the shore and hears the mighty waters rolling evermore in ordinary life we are led and rightly led what else can we do this way and that by personal feeling and taste and experience we fight for religion or fight against religion we fight for morality or fight against morality we are traditionalists or rebels reactionaries or revolutionaries only sometimes in the fury of our faith and our unfaith there come blown across the world margins whispers and hints of undreamed of secrets and unformulated hopes then it is that the faces of the people and things we know grow strange and distant or yield their place to faces we know not and things lighter than air then it is that the most real seems the most dreamlike and the most impossible the most true for the flowing of the waters of life have fallen into a new rhythm and even the children of saturn may lift up their hearts it is too fatally easy in these days when machinery that star called wormwood dominates the world to fall into a state of hard and flippant cynicism or into yet more hopeless and weary irony the unintelligent cheerfulness of the crowd so sickens one the disingenuous sophistry of its hired preachers fills one with such blank depression that it seems sometimes as though the only mood worthy of normal intelligence were the mood of callous indifference and universal mockery all men are liars and the ultimate futility grins horribly from its mask well it is precisely at these hours at the hours when the little pincers of the gods especially nip and squeeze that it is good to turn the pages of fyodor dostoevsky he brings us his balm of gilead between the hands of strange people but it is a true alabaster box of precious ointment 
and though the flowers it contains are snatched from the house of the dead, one knows at whose feet it was once poured forth, and for whose sake it was broken. The books that are the most valuable in this world are not the books that pretend to solve life's mystery with a system. They are the books which create a certain mood, a certain temper, the mood, in fact, which is prepared for incredible surprises, the temper which no surprise can overpower. These books of Dostoevsky must always take their place in this first great role, because, though he arrives at no conclusion, and utters no oracle, the atmosphere he throws around us is the atmosphere in which life and death are equal. The gestures his people make in their great darkness are the gestures of that which goes upon its way beyond good and beyond evil. Dostoevsky is more than an artist. He is perhaps, who can tell, the founder of a new religion, and yet the religion he founds is a religion that has been about us for more years than human history can count. He, more than anyone, makes palpable and near, too palpable, O Christ, the terror of it, that shadowy, monstrous weight of oppressive darkness, through which we signal to each other from our separate hells. It sways and wavers, it gathers and regathers, it thickens and deepens. It lifts and sinks, and we know all the while that it is a thing we ourselves have made. And the intolerable whispers whereof it is full are the children of our own thoughts, of our lusts, of our fears, of our terrible creative dreams. Dostoevsky's books seem, as one handles them, to flow mysteriously together into one book. And this book is the book of the Last Judgment, the great obscure land he leads us over, so full of desolate marshes and forlorn spaces, and hemlock roots, and drowned tree trunks, and Golgothas of broken shards and unutterable refuse. As the land of those visions which are our inmost selves, and for which we are answerable and none else. Across this land we wander, feeling for some fingers cold and dead as our own to share the terror with, and it might be finding none. For as we have groped forward, we have been pitiless in the darkness and half dead ourselves, have trodden the dead down, and the dead are those who cannot forgive. For murdered love has no heart wherewith that should forgive. Will the Christ never come? End of chapter 15